everyone. Welcome to the clubhouse. I'm Beth. And I'm Kirsten. And this is the Made for TV Movie Club Book Club. I'm so excited. Yay. We have a really special guest today. We do. Chuck, uh, now I'm going to say his name wrong. Chuck Palunek says that in range alone, Richard Thomas is boundless. He is Lovecraft. He is Bradbury. He is Gaiman. He is an award-winning author of three novels, three short story collections, a novella, and more than 165 short stories. He's been nominated for Bram Stoker and Shirley Jackson Awards. His latest short story collection, Spontaneous Human Combustion, drops on February 22nd, 2022, so just a couple of weeks. In, in addition to writing, he is an instructor, an editor, and mentor. Welcome, Richard Thomas. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, guys. Excited to have you. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I mean, between Trilogy of Terror and the Sean Cassidy and of course <laughs> our our past relationship, Beth, you know, it's uh wow. I mean, I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. <laughs> We're even more excited now that we know how much you love Sean Cassidy because Dude, yeah, right. We, totally. we love him so much. It's a special connection that we now have. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. We all have that in common and um, trilogy and ter of terror. Yeah, and Sean. Yeah. And Sean. You got to write that back. Oh, back. Damn it. She's still waiting. I'm still waiting. So, <laughs> Richard, tell us a little bit about the book that's coming out, Short Story. Yeah. So, thank you. My short story collection, Spontaneous Human Combustion, is my fourth short story collection. I've been writing for about 14 years. It's with Turner Publishing, who's been amazing. They've done such a great job with me. Everything from the cover to the interior illustrations to the blurbs to the media and reviews and all. It's gotten two star reviews so far, which is my first ever. I've never gotten a star review from Publishers Weekly. Thank hey. you. So I write speculative fiction. So mostly fantasy, sci-fi, and horror. But I, I kind of came up writing neo-noir and kind of crime and thrillers and kind of classic horror. And then got my MFA in 2012 and then kind of wove together a lot of different genres to write the kind of hybrid stuff I do now. So I would say I'm a neo-noir speculative writer with a literary bent. So fantasy, sci-fi, horror, thrillers, neo-noir, new weird, southern gothic, transgressive, magical realism, and literary fiction too. So it's kind of a, I'm trying to take the best of all worlds hybrid my MFA definitely was a literary influence on my writing. And, you know, I grew up reading Stephen King, of course, and I read more of his stuff than anybody else, but I don't really write like him. I'm a little more dense, more of a maximalist. So I'm more influenced by people like uh, Stephen Graham Jones and Brian Evanson and Livia Llewellyn and other kind of dense genre writers who have kind of a surreal maximalist vibe to them. So this collection, 14 stories coming out on 22222. That numerology is awesome. It's kind of my writing in the last five years. I, th I think it's some of the best work I've done to date. So it's really, you know, as writers, Beth, we try and keep improving. And I think this is a culmination of my education and my, you know, hard work and practice and reading a lot and writing a lot and watching great movies and just kind of, you know, A24 films and Black Mirror and all the weird things that have influenced me in the last five years. So I really am swinging for the fences on this. And so far, it's getting a really good reception. And some of the stories in here were longlisted for Best Horror of the Year. The novel at the end, Ring of Fire, was on the preliminary Bram Stoker ballot. So it's a really, really fun, intense package of stories from really short stories, 1,501 words, one sentence called Undone to the novelette that's almost 15,000 words. And, you know, I think if anything ties the stories together, it's I've been working on putting more heart and more love at the center of my stories, awesome. more hope. 
So, yeah. I mean, if hope punk is a thing that most of my, well, it's dark fiction and some horror and some dark fantasy and some dark sci-fi, I want to make the trip worth it so that you come out the other side, you know, maybe a little shaken up, a little roughed up, a little, you know, damaged, but intact. So I'm trying to put some hope at the end of my work, the dark fiction, because the last couple of years have been kind of bleak and, you know, I just yeah. can't write so many, so much bleak stuff anymore. So uh, one last thing on the collection is that for spontaneous human combustion, a lot of people think it's about this concept of bursting into flames. And there's some artwork on the cover with a woman's face and this wolf and all. It's not so much about that, although I think there is some fire in this story. There's some weird moments. It's more about, you got to put the em- emphasis on the right syllable, right? <laughs> it's, it's, spon- it's, the, it's spontaneous human combustion. So it's the idea of humanity combusting from inside otherwise monstrous characters or the opposite, the monsters within us as humans and how those characters and situations play out across the book. I love it. I can't wait to read it. And thank you. I'm going to, in the show notes, everything that Richard talks about links to bind book. And we'll talk a little bit later about some of the classes that you teach. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Everything I'm going to put in the show notes so you can find it. And I'm going to get a little, a picture of the cover and and post it too to our socials that you can, so everybody can find a copy. I I can't wait to read it. I'm so excited. Thank you. I appreciate it. So our review for this episode is Trilogy of Terror, which aired on ABC on March 4th, 1975. Our Wayback Machine TV Tango does not have a description, but Ultimate70s.com writes that Karen Black plays, plays four tormented women in three contemporary stories of the bazaar. In one, she is a reclusive woman who is fearful of her sister, a school teacher being blackmailed by a student in another, and a shy mother-dominated young woman with a doll fetish who is... <laughs> That's not right. (laughs) When one of her dolls comes to life. Each of the three stories is written by Richard Matheson, who wrote the screenplay for the final story, Amelia. Mental Floss called it the most terrifying 25 minutes on U.S. television. I think we're all going to have an opinion that may differ from Mental Floss. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. Richard, have you heard of Richard Matheson? Have you read him yeah. at all? Yeah, I've heard of him. I've read a little bit of his stuff. I was excited to see his name pop up. And yeah. also, this I don't know if you guys uh, knew William F. Nolan, too. No, he wrote no. the screenplay. I was friends with him. I knew wow. him. He passed away recently. But I was like, oh, Richard Matheson, great. And then William on there, too. So I was like, wow. It's like it's funny when I'm watching more and more shows these days. And I'm like, I'm watching Station Eleven right now. Yeah. And... Uh, a friend of mine, Patrick Somerville's like the writer and the like executive producer. I'm like, oh my god! That's I'm watching so cool. like uh, Sex in the City. My friend Samantha Irby is a writer on there, and okay. you know, Adam Neville and Josh Mallerman. It's cool to see all these people kind of breaking out and doing great stuff. But yeah, I was happy to see Matheson on there. I wonder if his stories <laughs> were more terrifying than this, how this played yeah. out. But yeah, I mean, he's a big writer, obviously. Yeah. I also read that he wrote the short story that the movie Duel was based on. Mm. He wrote the screenplay for that. And that was, I think, Steven Spielberg's first directing gig was Duel, a TV movie from maybe 73 or 72. I can't remember. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually thought about offering that one up for us to do, but I'm glad that we Mm. did this one. I think this one will be better. This was fantastic. Karen Black stars in all three stories. She began her career in 1960 and (laughs) has 205 acting credits to her name, including Murder, She Wrote. Yay! Casey's favorite show is Murder, She Wrote, so we always try and find a uh, connection. I couldn't believe how how easy that was considering how few people are in this movie. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) She was nominated for an Oscar for 1971's Five Easy Pieces, 
and a, nominated for 13 awards, including three Golden Globes. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, her yeah. her career lasted 50 years or I, more. I yeah. think she was wasn't she an Easy Rider as well? Yeah, that might I'm be. Sure. Yeah, yeah she's been in that. a lot of stuff. Yep. Yeah. And would, her, now, would you guys call her a a scream queen, or do you think that was just part of her career? I think that she's known for being a scream queen because she did so many like yeah. horror movies, but. I think she's done a lot of other stuff that maybe didn't get noticed that mm-hmm. because of her mm. notoriety as a screen. Right. Right. What I'd like to, I guess what I would like to know is, is that what she wanted to be known for? You know what I mean? Like, right. She was in like, you know, she's been nominated for golden globes, but she's known for movies like this. To me, I don't think that would be a bad thing, but you have to wonder like, yeah, you know, it's curious. Yeah. I never yeah. would have, thought of her as that but definitely i can see how how she could earn that moniker i will say in, though in she's the a, there's a lot of things about this movie we'll talk about but she's a good actress yes she, is. she, she gave is. a solid performance she did. for everything she did yeah yeah definitely i really enjoyed watching her in this this is actually i'm pretty sure it's the first time i've i've seen this movie i yeah, want to say too. I mean, maybe I, I feel like I've seen the clips of the doll so many times. I feel like maybe I saw it when I was younger, but if I did, it was like 40 years ago. I don't remember yeah. it, but yeah. this was pretty cool. Oh, and, and Richard Matheson for listeners who don't know, he wrote, I am legend. That's the book oh, yeah. I know most for. Yeah. And then hell house. Those are probably his two bigger titles, but yeah, yeah. I thought oh, Karen yeah. was great wrote, in this. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt Richard. Yep. Hitting the pendulum with Vincent mm. Price, which Casey made me oh, watch. That's one. Of that's one favorite. of her favorite movies. He wrote favorite. the screenplay for that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. So cool. he yeah. he was he was very well known, which for I sure. love. I just love that, like somebody who writes short stories yeah. is making television about the short stories. I just love that. That's one of my yeah. favorite things because you always think of like, oh, it has to be the novel that moves to to become right. the television or the movie but that's not the case at all no because as and as we know the stephen king one the body was stand by me one of the best movies i think of all time was a short story yeah same with children of of the corn yeah i think you know it's kind of the the idea that a picture is worth a thousand words so imagining an hour tv or an hour and a half two and a half hours of a movie like what can you actually work in there, right? So short stories tend to get adapted really well. I think books can too, obviously, but I think you look at something like The Stand, it's like it really needs to be a series, right? Yeah. You know, Game of Thrones needs to be a series. Some things you just can't pack into a couple hours. Ted Chang's story became the movie Arrival, which I thought was brilliant, right? So I think, especially on these anthology shows, like I love that a lot of these short stories, you know, the old Twilight Zone and stuff, yeah. and you can look at other things like Black Mirror, and even there's a one called Tales from the Loop that I liked a lot, but I think adapting a, a single story into a an episode, like an hour, is is very doable. Yeah. Um, and adapted into a film is is I think you can get more of the content into that hour, hour and a half, two hours than you can a novel, right? Well, we're gonna have you back when one of your short stories makes it um onto the Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Fingers not, crossed. If you're not too important for us, we'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll always have time. Hey, from your lips to God's ears. But yeah, right. <laughs> All right, so we'll start with story one, Julie. The movie opens on a college campus. Students chat at Eddie are making disparaging remarks about female students. That's one of our favorite things in these. We love them. Yeah, the misogyny and the sexism mm-hmm. of it all is just... Yeah. It's, Quick it's, question, it's, is that is that prevalent? Yes, <laughs> we've noticed it's very prevalent. I think it's mostly prevalent in the 70s. Yeah, movies that we've seen. Yeah, okay. Yeah, across the Less board. Less in that I would say and eighties, but look, definitely you see it decline in the nineties. Yeah, not as much yeah. in yeah. the nineties. There's a little bit, but not nearly what it 
It is yeah. never going to go away. It, it, it <laughs> 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 Professor Elridge, who we're going to call Julie, walks by and says hello. Then Chet wonders aloud what Julie looks like under her clothes. <laughs> Which is so, it feels so like for a 70s movie, oh, right off the bat. It's right, very, right. already I need a shower. <laughs> <laughs> During the class Julie's teaching, Chad has a daydream about joining her in bed. He asks her out, but she shuts him down. At her apartment, Julie's roommate says, if you just, oh, this is my favorite line of all movies ever. If you just worked at it a little, you'd be really attractive. <laughs> <laughs> just a little effort. Just she little effort shut that bitch down. Yeah. And Chad is outside peeping in. He's, yeah. And it's not even like, he, he's like jumping up and down and looking. <laughs> and yeah. The weirdest. It's so weird. It's so weird. And let's not forget that she he's peeping in while she's in her living room. Taking, taking off her her nightgown. Yeah. Yeah, which everyone does. Because yeah. everyone does that in their Always. Room, right? Why yeah. wait till your bedroom? Yeah. But when you get to the twist later, we'll yeah. understand why, yeah. right? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After class one day, Dad, Dad asked Julie to join him at the drive in for a classic film vampire flick. At the drive in, Julie or Chad roofies Julie Stone and she passes out. Again, that shocked me. I'm like totally. 10 minutes in, and I'm like, what the hell's happening? Chad right. takes her to a motel and takes pictures of her, and then the scene cuts as he begins to undress. To me, that's the scariest shit out there. Yes, yeah, so we can just of, assume that there was assault. We can assume. Right. And then what does she do? She He takes her home, and she apologizes yeah. for spoiling his evening. Mm-hmm. And tells Chad they can't go out again because students and professors can't date. Chad develops the pictures he took of Julie and calls Julie early the next morning and tells her they're going for a drive. In his car, Chad shows Julie the pictures. She calls Chad sick and says, I know you drugged me. And then she threatens to go to the police. And he's like, well, I'm just going to tell him that you post for these pictures. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, okay, I'll just do that then. We'll just do whatever you want. <laughs> and see, Julie asks Chad what he wants from her. And, and then it comes. So she's teaching and he gets up and he has his book and he puts it on her desk. And she's like, kind of afraid, but also has to know. And she opens it up and it's a note that says, come directly to my apartment after class because I have friends I want you to meet. She dismisses class suddenly. I wonder why. Yeah. And then she's at Chad's later and he turns on music and she gets, so we find out, you know, there's obviously this ongoing thing we don't see off screen. She -hmm. gets him a drink and then she goes and turns the music off. Sorry, I just knocked your paper. Julie tells Chad she's bored and that the game is over. This is my favorite part. She mm. explains that his mind has not been his since he said hello to him. Chad yes. begins coughing and accuses Julie of drugging him. And she said, and he says, you've drugged me. And she said, no, dear, I've killed you. I love After, that. I, didn't you love that part? That's, that's, that's the best line in the whole first one. Yeah, I, 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 think. I do. I loved it. I no, loved dear, it. I've killed you. I know, dear. I've killed you. And she's just so matter of fact, like, like yeah. what you want to have? A, I want a whiskey and just. Well, I was going to say, yeah. does she have a highball glass herself? She yeah, does. she's yeah, like she it's does. so seventies, like yes. just like I'm just drinking and murdering because that's what I do <laughs> on Wednesdays. <laughs> After totally. dying, she pulls him into his darkroom and starts it on fire. So then we see Julie reading a newspaper with the article "Student Dies in Fire." And then she tells her roommate, Anne, that Chad was wonderfully bright and had warned him about the dangerous chemicals in his darkroom. Then Julie adds the article to this photo album. It's kind of chilly, right? Where she's like taking mm-hmm. 
thing and putting it in the album. And then obviously we're to imply that she's murdered lots and lots of dudes. And right. then there's a knock on the door and a student named Arthur Moore is there to ask for tutoring. And Julie like, like lets him in. But I said to Casey, I don't know, Richard, if you recognized who that was. I did. Who I was, was just going to say that. As Gregory Harrison. Yes. My mom loved him. Yes. Trapper John MD. That's yes. right. My mom loved him. Yeah. So I was Dude, like, I, oh, he's so cute. I, I think that's part of watching the shows from this era is you're like, wait, where have I seen him? I'm like, oh, he was an airplane. And wait, he was a Trapper John. And like all the cast, I'm like squinting at him. And these guys chat and his buddy with the hair. And oh, like, yeah. it's just like, oh my God, it's such a trip. I, to- I totally recognize him. I'm like, who is that? It's so great to is- see the early roles. Yeah. Richard, what did you think of the first one? What did you think? What was your take on the first story? Okay, so I will say with all three stories, I felt as a person who writes horror stories, I was yeah. kind of like, these are pretty straightforward and like you pretty much see everything coming. But I mean, I have to put myself in the mindset of the 70s. Yeah. I think back in 1975, this was probably pretty edgy. You know, she's the Black Widow here. She's not the victim. She's the one who's doing this, and she's been doing it for a long time, right? So I think for 1975, it was probably pretty cutting edge. So I love that twist, because I, I talked to my students about writing, and I, I talked about characters, and like push them to the love or hate, right? If you're going to make a bad guy, really make him bad so we really hate him. I think we hate Chad from the start. And I think we really feel bad for her. And then you flip them both, right? So for him, it starts with that really creepy misogynistic stuff they're saying outside of class. And I think, like, I was surprised at the misogyny in here, but it's 1975, right? Yeah. So, I mean, equal rights were just starting. Like, you know, horrible people still are now, but even worse back then, right? To really reduce her to an object like this. So I was, I was like, wow, like, this is really creepy. And then to have it flipped, I, th- I think the other thing that kind of I thought was interesting was like, they're insinuating a lot of pretty dark things for, yes. I mean, for a made-for-TV movie. Yes. They don't, I mean, I'm assuming he rapes her. Yeah. And then I yeah. assume he has friends over who also rape her or yeah. gangbang her. Like, I don't even know yeah. how far this goes. The roofies, yeah. I was like, oh my God, the roofies. I'm like, this is some dark stuff. I hope this was like a midnight movie on Saturday because yeah. I can't believe, I mean, they don't really show it, but what they imply. Wow. I was yeah, pretty you know, surprised. It's interesting how- you say that, Richard, because I, when I was doing some research on this, I did read that at least one station in Miami refused to. It, this was played at 7.30 p.m. prime time, like so 7.30 Eastern. Wow. wow. And they refused to play it. And then some other stations did. And people were calling and saying, because this was the first one shown. That's still family hour. Yeah. That's like family television hour. It's hard to believe that this made it. It's hard to believe that the content at all made it. What do you think? Right. I mean, it's so hard. I feel like, like we were talking about before, I feel like there were things that snuck through the cracks in a way in the 70s where it was like everything was so uptight. And But these TV shows that were on, like, I mean, think about like Maude. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, right. Or Soap. Maude yeah. was really, really cutting edge for its time. Totally. Totally. And and my sister and I snuck Maud on on our mm-hmm, TV mm-hmm. in our bedroom. Like, why? I can't believe we had a TV in our bedroom. My parents didn't even have a TV in our bedroom. Yeah. We somebody gave my family this little black and white TV, and their parents put it in our bedroom. And we would watch Maud, and we knew it was like, Much you know, we should never let mom and dad know yeah. that we watched this. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. that things 
like in a way snuck through. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely would not be. No, but it also feels really timely almost like to be, yep. this stuff is still happening. Totally. And we're what, totally. 50 years later almost? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. hard to believe that. that. That to me, that's the scariest part of this, this segment at least was just that I was so nervous. Like when, when the whole, like he was taking the pictures and he, and then that, mm-hmm. that note, like come to my apartment. It terrified me in the sense yeah. that I hate that mind game. And right. when it's done really well, it's terrifying. Now, I don't know that this was done that well, but I mm-hmm. do think it probably was on the cutting edge of something different than what you would normally see on TV right. in 1975, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I can remember watching the TV show Soap, and that was a yeah. big deal back in the day because it was like one of the first, you know, Billy Crystal playing a gay character, yes. right? Yeah. So, I mean, and then we had, you know, black sitcoms and stuff too, but I mean, I think it's really a product of its era. Yeah, it was. Pre- I mean, I I love the reversal. I, I mean, I have to yeah. I have to think she's one of the first early female serial killers because that's what she yeah. is. She's yeah, a serial right. killer. Yeah, right. And she's not. And then the other part of that too is she's talking about these mind games. Is she a witch or does she? Have, she seems to imply she has some sort of powers that I'm in your head. I'm bringing you to me. I'm calling you to me. I, I've been possessing you. Is what basically what she says. So yeah. is she something more? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't even think of it that way. I was thinking of it straight up, but she had to have right. had some kind of power over him besides right. just her her wiles because yeah, she yeah. looked at him and suddenly he changed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about Richard Matheson's background, he was a horror writer, right? Yeah. So I keep thinking there's something supernatural, speculative going on in here with, with her. But I, it's such a satisfying ending because we really hate him. I don't know how to react to these films because it's campy now. Yeah. I think it was probably a bit edgy then for yeah. the sex and the violence and the content. I mean, not they don't really. Sh- well, there's a little bit of violence at the end, but just kind of the the dark places it goes. But it's hard to figure out how to react to it. Like, do I love it because it's so bad, or do I just appreciate what they did at that time in history that they were ahead of the game? I think the only pick I have at really, I mean, it's either you pick it all of it or, <laughs> or nothing. Yeah. Is that he poisons her, he roofies her, and then she poisons him. So it felt a little bit like same thing, like. Yeah. But I don't know how else he would have. He had to drug her. I can't think of another way that he. Could, I mean, I guess he could have put like something on her. But he's trying to hide the fact that he did it until he reveals the photos. But this is kind of a weird question. But don't you think she on her way home she would have been like aware that something had happened to her? Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, I think so. But I. But then when you find out the twist, it kind of the truth is the that story. So she that she knew what was going on. Yeah. So she wasn't. Yeah. So of course she knew what was going on the whole time. Yeah, so she must have known, like, I mean, that was part of the game. I mean, that's right. She's really sick if she did that to herself, too. Well, so, so yeah, so then it's like, did she fake? I mean, think about it. She didn't drink that much of that root beer before she was like out, Out. right? Yeah, right. So, how much of that was real and how much of that was her pretending? Good point to play her. I'm gonna say, because when she talked about him, she said, You're boring. She said, I've had other guys that have been way more exciting, your lack of intellect, your lack of creativity, right? So, I'm I have a feeling she was probably awake for the whole thing, enjoying it, because this is what she wants. She seeks out adventure. And of course, yeah. even though we're coming out of the 60s, you know, the age of free love, right? In the 70s, and even today, women showing any sort of, you know, passion or lust are, are whores, they're sluts, right? They can't have any sort of sexual energy or, or they're, breeded a, they're branded a tramp, right? So yeah. she has, she can't come out and really 
a lot of women back there, if not all women, really, you can't express yourself like that. You know, maybe in the clubs, and even then people totally judge and they still judge now. It's a double standard, yeah, right? You're right. So I think she's like, I'm going to do these things, keep them in secret. And then when I'm bored, I'll kill them. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. the extra, that's the extra yeah. bit. <laughs> and, and so that I say, you go girl. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that was my thinking too, was I got to the end of it and I was like, ah, she does want to live deliciously this one, you know, <laughs> like the end of the witch. I, I like that empowerment. I think I'm, I'm on her side all the way through. <laughs> I, I kind of agree. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next one. Richard, you're reading. Sure. Okay. All right. I get to read now. Awesome. Story two, Millicent and Therese. The second story in the trilogy opens with a woman named Millicent, a severe looking brunette. She's watching a black and white home movie on a projector of what appears to be a happy family. Millicent is writing out her father's recent funeral, writing about and complaining that her sister Therese is out cavorting with a man. <gasps> Millicent, well, I know, right? I know. So soon after daddy died. Millicent <laughs> complains that Therese used, used her wiles on their father, even at age 12. Now, again, okay, I'm just going to briefly interrupt myself. Yeah. Creepy bleak stuff here. So now we're talking about underage incest. Yes. Okay, story two. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's see where it, really it goes. Gets better from here. Right. What are you going to do for three? And that their mother was weak and innocent. Millicent calls Therese evil and spoiled and believes that her ugliness is fermenting in her soul. A man named Mr. Anmar comes to the home at Millicent's invite. She makes a point to state that she and Therese look very different. And even though they are sisters, even though they're sisters, she tells Anmar that Therese seduced their father when she was 16. Millicent tells Anmar that their mother died from an accidental overdose, but she believes Therese put extra pills in her milk. And the weird, the, the weird thing, though, that she says that they're, that she seduced the father. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anmar asks why Millicent stayed, and she replies that she had nowhere to go. Millicent believes Therese uses books on demonology, Satanism, witchcraft, and voodoo to capture the souls of others. So what's nice here is you can see this. It builds on kind of story one in Matheson's writing that this is the kind of world he's writing in, right? Yeah. Millicent supposes Therese is guided by Satan and that her soul is damned. Anmar tells Millicent she's the one who needs help, and she accuses Anmar of engaging in an unknown immoral act with Therese, which he doesn't deny. And when you understand the twist at the end, that has even more power, right, when we look back exactly. on it now. In the next scene, Millicent again is writing. She writes that Therese destroyed her room and believes her father's death released demons in her. Millicent calls Dr. Ramsey to complain about Therese. She tells Ramsey Therese is jealous of their relationship. He agrees to come over the next day. When Dr. Ramsey arrives, Therese, a pretty blonde, answers the door. Unlike Millicent, she's in full makeup and a white shirt, orange miniskirt, and white platform heels. She's got it going on. <laughs> Therese offers a Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. Wig. That cheap wig. The wig is so cheap. But the shoes are fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. Therese offers Ramsey a drink and he refuses. Therese tells him she listened in on his conversation with Millicent the previous day. Therese lights a cigarette and confesses to destroying Millicent's room. Therese explains that Millicent's hatred of her is the only excitement she has in her lonely existence. Kind of true. Therese, yeah. Therese then tries to seduce Ramsey, but he leaves. We'll find out more about that later. Yeah. Therese is banging on Millicent's bedroom door as Millicent is writing that Therese must die. Really good camera work and flipping back and forth in the outfits, right? Outside her house, Millicent finds a girl crying because her doll is broken. The girl explains Therese came out and broke it because she was making too much noise. Millicent promises to buy her a new one. Millicent writes that she's going to kill Therese by following a voodoo curse from a book. Millicent calls Dr. Ramsey and, and quits him, then takes a voodoo doll and pin from a locked drawer. Dr. Ramsey drives to Millicent's house and finds Therese dead on the floor with a voodoo doll and a pin next to it. He places the voodoo doll on the bed and calls the police. Before the ambulance takes her away, he 
He wipes off her makeup. Big twist coming. Big reveal. Spoiler. Woo-hoo. We find out that the deceased's name is Therese Millicent Merrimore. Dr. Ramsey said it's the most advanced case of duo personality he's ever seen. Dun, 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 dun. dun. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so it's interesting because, I mean, anybody watching this knows it's Karen Black playing both characters. So I think yeah. the minute we see the, the outfit change, we know what's going on, right? Yeah. That's not going to be a spoiler. I think what I like about this at the end is that when she has a voodoo doll and it kills her, like she kills herself. Oops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think, again, the magic and the darkness and the spell, the Satanism seems to work, but she's going after her sister and in actuality is killing herself, both, both parts of her. Right. Yeah. With this one, I feel like, I wonder if this was a little bit innovative because this was even pre Sybil, I think, like, I don't think, People understood like multiple personality disorder. I think right. people thought it was a lot more common and dangerous and sad and right. scary than it was. But yeah. I figured it out actually before that, Richard. I figured it out when there was that home movie and there was one kid. I'm mm. like, oh, I think I got this. Wow. Well, you know you're, faster, I mean? you're faster than me. But yeah, I think back then they probably would have been used to seeing actresses or actors playing twins. Sisters. Yeah. yeah? So... I don't think that was uncommon. I mean, no. we even have like even in the was it the eighties that TV show Sister Sister she played right. twins. Yep. Oh, no, 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 those were no, twins. Those were twins in that one. And I'm trying to think of a scene. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we're just hung up on the twins because we both have twins. Oh, Richard wow. has a, has twins too. Oh, I have God, twins wow. and Richard has twins. Another connection. Yeah. No. no, Casey doesn't, but she has triplet siblings. Yeah. Oh wow. Wow. They don't listen. Well, David does. Hi, David. Hi, David. David yeah, listens. My brother listens. <laughs> Okay, what did you think? You had a little question about the voodoo doll thing. Well, I had a question about the voodoo doll thing, but really, like, for me, just the creepiest part was the little girl outside crying about the broken doll. Like, it was horrifying because the doll's face was, like, bashed in. Like, who breaks a child's doll? So, like, it just felt very, like, this Therese character was extraordinarily violent. But I also felt like Millicent wouldn't have gone out there and, like, she seemed so angry and mean that, like, it felt like, why would you go pat a child on the shoulder and promise to buy her a new doll? Because you just, you're kind of mean. Yeah. Right. Kind of mean right. to everybody in the whole movie, except for the little girl. So I thought that was weird. I also got that feeling they were a lot more, like, isolated, but they weren't. They were in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why the neighbors wouldn't know that that was the same woman. Oh, Does right? that make sense? I know that. Wouldn't they be like, yeah. that's I think, the crazy lady down the street. Yeah. Just that's two different Don't people. go to the Boo Radley house. Yeah. That's exactly. the Boo Radley house. For sure. Yeah. But I think, Richard, my favorite moment of this particular story was when at the ambulance that was actually banned, <laughs> we think, was probably painted to look like an ambulance. Right. I love that. The ambulance drivers get out and go running into the house with nothing. They don't bring a bag of like, let's save this lady's life. They don't bring the stretcher. Not it's just magically there in the back scene. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, dude, you really need to train a little better because you can't go running into a house. We like to look for those potholes, yeah. or those little yeah. missing things, because yeah, typically I, I, watch yeah, that's, yeah, definitely you're gonna find a lot of little weird continuity errors like that. I think for me that some of the power, again, a lot of these things comes from kind of looking back on it once you're done is what it meant when she was talking to the guy, Anmar, and when she was talking to the doctor, the thing she talks about from her twin, her sister, is pretty unsettling stuff that what you, now you start to understand maybe why Anmar was a little more upset, you know, because she's insinuating that he had a relationship with an underage girl, her, 
And yeah. now I, I don't know how he feels seeing her like this. Do, does he know about her split personality? Because the doctor obviously does. Yeah. So when he's there, he's like, oh, I'm not going to. I'm actually, wow, his character, he didn't sleep with her too. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's yeah. like, oh, I like this personality. Yeah, she's fun. He actually, he's trying to treat her, right? So yeah. that's very professional of him, which usually doesn't happen in these movies, right? Yeah. But the other thing about the doctor is <clears> that he <throat> says that he was the family doctor. He doesn't even call himself a psychiatrist. Right. And I was like, so you're a family doctor because you wouldn't really be treating her. But obviously, he didn't do a very good job anyway. <laughs> yeah. Was he your pediatrician or something? I mean, yeah. Right? <laughs> Which would be even creepier because I think they said that he was having a relationship with one of them, right? Right. Or was it implied or did I just do there's that? So many, there's so much like deep down secrets implied yeah. throughout <clears> this little blurb, you know? Yeah. For me, I just feel like it's like, oh, he's the he's the family doctor. He's keeping things hush hush. He hid he hid the assault of her as a child by her father, and and then whatever happened with her mother, you know, like he's the family doctor. Maybe he hid the right. possible murder of her mother, right? Oh yeah, was in the milk, and so right. he's been there smoothing it all over because they're very wealthy and they have to keep up appearances. It's true, right. and also. You're right. That's a really good point. So it's it's so interesting. So we have like roofie rape in the first one. Now we have right. incest and murder mm-hmm. in the second one. It's so crazy. Oh, and then we have the third. third. But before we get to the third, first of all, I want to say, I don't know. If, I think I told you this, but I don't know if you recognize the doctor, Richard. He played mm-hmm. the I think it was Henry on yep. Funky Brewster. He did. Mm. Yes, he, yes. Yeah. I thought I, I, thought I saw him from like somewhere. Adopted Punky. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really watch that show, but the no. voice was so, I'm like, the yeah. voice is driving me crazy. I thought it might be a cartoon mm-hmm. character. And then I looked him up and I'm like, oh, that's the dude. I didn't really watch Punky. We were all a little older when that came on. I think we might have all been because I think Richard, you're roughly the same age as we are. So we were probably just starting high school, maybe when that show came on. I watched babysat for. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't babysit anymore by then. I had to go wear polyester and serve all the cute boys in my high school at the diner. (laughs) (laughs) It was not. It was not traumatic at all. I should write stories about that. What am I missing out on? I'm wearing your. Yes. Okay. So actually, let's before we move on to the last one, Richard, talk a little bit about. So in addition to being a writer, you also teach writing. I've taken several classes from you. Actually, I posted this on your Facebook this morning, but on the last day of your contemporary dark fiction class, so it would have been December of 2020, because it was the other one I took last fall, you said never give up. And I wrote that down on this sticky note, and I've had it on my desk ever since. Yay. Yeah. Because it's so inspirational. Richard is such a good instructor. He, he really is, and he's very inspiring. So Thank tell you. us a little bit about what you teach. Sure. Before I do that real quick, another thing that actor was known for, he was in all the Police Academy movies, too. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're yeah, right. I was just I looking about up. that. Yeah. And it also did say in the notes, it said that Millicent calls Dr. Ramsey and quits him. So I think she was with him as Millicent, but he wasn't with her as her sister because that would be wrong. So when she was in that having a state, he wouldn't be with her. Yeah, I don't know. I think either oh, yeah. way, either way, that's kind of creepy and unsettling. But yeah, Sib- Sybil is really a big movie. I joke about that one. If my, yeah. <laughs> if, my, if my wife is being erratic, I call her Sybil. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which person, which one I'm getting today, right? But uh, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think Sybil was a big movie. Who, who was Sybil? Who played the role? I was, um. oh no, I have. It wasn't oh, Sally Fields. I, 
God damn it, Bethany, you make me do that every time. <laughs> Richard, in every episode, I say to Casey, Casey, what, who was in this movie? And she always looks at me with like a deer in the headlights. And I just got that. Now I know why she doesn't like it when I do that. It was um, It was oh Sally Fields. God. It was Sally Field. Thank you. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I remember that being a big. I remember that being a big deal back in the day. Yeah. Emmy Award. Oh my God! Now I have to look it up. It drives Casey crazy. I do this to her every episode, Richard. Now I just now I got to. When did that come out? Oh, dude, Sybil Sybil came out in 1976. So it would have come out the next year. Yeah. So it makes sense, though. The story, the book, was published in 73. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So, that's great. You know, that's great. So that must have been sort of an upcoming sort of yeah. idea for stories at the time. So still innovative because Sybil is probably yeah. the the actual like movie sure. when people think about multiple personalities. Yeah, I do. Sort of. I do totally. Yeah, and yeah. I wonder if it it I'm could. I'm I don't sorry, know when. I, that's okay. I don't know when Richard Matheson wrote this story, but I wonder if that could have influenced his writing of this, yeah, or if I he wonder, wrote this story before I, that. Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I want to read it though now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now I got Casey going down a rabbit hole. Oh, so sorry. Sorry, Casey. No, no. I do this to her every episode. This yeah. happens. I'm just okay, glad good. it was you that did it this time, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sorry. You're, help, um, you're pulling up a lot of memories from when I was, I guess, in my teens or le- younger. Yeah, but as, as far as the teaching, yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I got my MFA in 2012. And so I've been teaching at Lit Reactor for, I think, since then, roughly my short story mechanics class. And as with a lot of things in my life, I just kind of dipped my toe in the water. So when I was, I was, I went from my whole writing career, I woke up at the age of 40 one day and said, I miss writing. I saw the Chuck Palahniuk's movie Fight Club. And it took me to his website where I hung out for a while, met all these people. And I read all of Chuck's books and was really excited about it. And that got me to take a class with Craig Clevenger, who I really love. That took me to a website called The Velvet, which was Craig Clevenger and Will Christopher Bear and Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah. That's why I met Stephen. I took a class with Craig and because I missed writing. I'd been in advertising for 25 years and I, I'd stopped writing. I never really, you know, I looked up one day and my life had gone by, right? And so I decided to take a class with Craig because I loved his books. He only had two books out at the time and took a class with him, tried to see if I had any talent or ability whatsoever. I wanted to see what Craig had to say. So I took a class with him and one of the stories in there, he said, was really good. You should send it out. A story called Stillness. I hadn't seen my work since I was 1990, back living downtown Chicago, mailing off my stuff to me magazine and <laughs> my little Remington quiet typewriter. It was just terrible, oh, terrible stuff. Days. Oh, my God. I know. But that, I sent that story, Stillness, to all the wrong places. The Paris Review, the New Yorker, and not only because they were super hard to get into, but not even the right genre, right? I should have been sending it to like more speculative markets. So I finally sent it. I was a big fan of Cemetery Dance, the publisher. And I wanted to get in the magazine. And so I sent it over there and they accepted it for an anthology called Shivers. And even though I've been a fan of Stephen King and Cemetery Dance for a long time, I'd never heard of that anthology because they published it very infrequently. And so I was kind of disappointed, but I'm like, hey, it's a pro sale. They're great people. I should be excited about this. And so when the table of contents came out, I was in there with Stephen King and Peter Straub and a bunch of other writers, people who went on. I think Adam Neville and Brian Hodge, a bunch of people that have really gone on to do great things too. So that kind of got me excited. I got my MFA after that. I've taken a couple of classes, took classes with Craig and Chuck and Jack Ketchum and Monica Drake and Max Berry and Stephen Graham Jones. And so coming through all that, several years later, I thought I would write a column for Lit Reactor where I could talk about my writing experiences, both as a writer and 
going through my MFA, right? And so I wanted to share my experiences with people so they didn't have to get an MFA. I could share with them. I, th- I figured now I have a master's degree. I think I could talk about the basics, right? So I had a column. And then out of that grew my short story mechanics class, which was the first class I ever taught. Because I thought, okay, I studied freight tag. That's my device. That's what I use. I think I could talk to people about the basics. And I started there. Out of that class, once that was going for a couple of years and went really well, I wanted to do, people kept asking me for other classes and more advanced classes. And so that led to my contemporary dark fiction class, which is 16 weeks, whereas short story mechanics is two. And then out of that class eventually came my advanced creative writing workshop. So whereas the short story mechanics class is the basic, basics freight tag, and you spend a week going over like six or seven different components and you write a short story. Dark fiction is 16 weeks, it goes much deeper. We read four novels, a book a month. We have an essay every week. We have a concept we're talking about that ties into it. The essay, we read a short story that, that works with that essay, and then people do an exercise and then read a quarter of the book and then rinse and repeat for 16 weeks. So that really goes much deeper into contemporary dark fiction. And I teach out of two anthologies that I edited. So at the same time that all this stuff is going on, I edited The New Black. I edited the Burnt Tongues anthology with Chuck Polinick and Dennis Widmeyer. And then at the lineup, 20 Provocative Women Writers with Black Lawrence Press. And then I decided, why not? Let's start a press. <laughs> so I created an imprint under Curbside Splendor called Dark House Press. And so it was there that we did the new black and we did exigencies and published, I think, eight books total over like, I think, three, three four years. And then eventually I left because the publisher was not a good guy. And then eventually started Gamut Magazine, which which I, I did the Kickstarter for, raised 50 grand, and then ran it for, only had one glorious year. But I think that part of the problem with that was I didn't realize how hard it is to create a brand and awareness. Yeah. And that I probably, I mean, 50 grand seemed like a crazy amount of money to me. I probably should have budgeted for three years because I think I needed that kind of time to really get on people's radar and build it up. So I think I went too fast, too big, too, too quick, and it, it didn't work out for a second year. But out of all these different things comes these classes, short story mechanics being the basics, dark fiction, expanding on the craft, and then the advanced creative writing workshop, all about critical analysis. So that you look at, we read the three best of the year anthologies, best horror, best fantasy and science fiction, and best American for literary. We read two stories out of each anthology, and then we read two of your stories, your peer stories, and then we critique them and talk about them and say what works and what doesn't. Because I want people to be able to look at their work and professional work, people that are getting nominated for awards, people that are getting into the publications where you want to be, and then making it into the best of the year anthologies. So really kind of the cream of the crop, right? And seeing where the student work is in relation to that and what the gap is and how to close that gap. So it's like the first class is creativity and being able to write a story. The second class is going much deeper, getting all these tools in your tool belt. And the third one is being able to look at your work, figure out what's wrong with it, diagnose it, and then have the tools to fix it. So that's kind of the trio of suites that I teach primarily. And then I also have a novel in a year class where we have a daily prompt and you write over a year, January being pre-writing prompts, six months of writing, four months of editing, and then December being a, a month of submission prompts. So that's kind of the body of work of what I'm teaching right now. I love teaching because I there's so many people out there who don't want to go to school, can't go to school, don't want to get an MFA. You know, it's too much money, too much time. My MFA was low res. So I went down there twice a year for like 10 days. I was just able to squeeze it into like your vacation, right? So I just like being able to share with people all the things I learned as a writer, all the things I learned in my MFA, all the things I've learned out here as, as an editor and a teacher and a publisher and running Gambit and running Dark House Press and try and give as much as I can to my students to 
help them to evolve as a writer. My goal as a teacher is to, you know, give a man a fish each for a day, teach a man a fish each for a lifetime, is to get you guys to a place where you don't need me anymore. And so I want to give you everything I can and, and hope that someday you'll wake up and be like, I'm good. Now I'm just going to write that you've worked up to, to writing consistently at a very high level and to continue to do that for the rest of your careers. I think is, you're going to be stuck with me for a while, though, because yay. I'm way, way, way <laughs> But I will say that to our listeners now, so typically you write in horror and a lot of what we read are horror science fiction, um, mm-hmm. you know, other genres, but it doesn't matter what genre you write in. I would highly <clears> recommend. And especially I think that short stories, mechan- short mm-hmm. story mechanics class is mm-hmm. great because you're really learning the real basics of what uh, go, needs yeah. to go into a short story. and I think it's really important to learn that because yeah. I, I get it. Like people think oh, I can write a story. I can do that. There are still rules you kind of have to follow, especially if you want to publish. Totally. And I also want to say that. So in your contemporary dark fiction, sometimes you have guests that come in guest writers and Stephen Graham Jones was a guest in when I was there. And he yeah. said, and it's so interesting because I think it was the same class. I wrote down, never give up that you said, he said, Somebody asked, like, what advice would you give? And he said, read outside your genre. And I thought, mm-hmm. I just did 16 weeks of that. And he could not be more right. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. really, I think it's important to read outside your genre. And actually, and I have, I've been writing a little bit in other genres since mm-hmm. I've started, especially with the last class, the, the writing workshop. Yeah, so, yeah, totally. And, and I just think that it's important. So even if you if you don't write horror, mm-hmm. still look into Richard's classes because they're Thank so yeah. useful and helpful. And you Thank get you. to meet some really great people. Totally. I mean, I've met a lot of really good people, yeah. who, some who want to write for a living, some who, like me, haven't really published much, some who have published but still want to keep working and getting feedback. Yeah. And getting feedback is so important, especially when yeah. you haven't really published a lot. Yeah. I yeah. used to be anti, I don't want feedback. I, I don't want, because, well, Casey knows this. I'm a little delicate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like to be told I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> In fact, I need the opposite. I need people right. to tell me how awesome <clears throat> I am all the time. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, put your I, ego away a little bit, but it's, it's still <laughs> helpful. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah. I mean, Beth, you're, you're doing great work. and I mean, I Thank wouldn't, you. I think if you're going to write, in any way at all, trying to write as a professional writer, anything close to that, I think you have to give yourself a couple of years. You have to give yourself three years at least to study your craft. You have to put in your ten thousand hours, right? So yeah, I was and talking. I also need to send stuff out because I yeah, really you do. don't do that. I and I think both that. both Stephen and I both said that somewhere around publishing our fiftieth or seventy fifth short story, we we're both like, oh, I think I know how to write a story now. I look yeah. back at my early stuff, stuff that was published, stuff that was some. For no money or little money, some for pro pay. I look back and I, and I cringe because I look at how much I, I still didn't know what I was doing. So it takes time. Stephen King says, in order to write, you must read and you must write. Outside your genre, for sure, 100%. Getting my MFA, the best thing that came out of that was that there were a lot of writers I had not read in my undergraduate studies that really influenced me and made my writing better. Everything from you know Joyce Carol Oates and Margaret yeah. Atwood to yeah. Mary Gateskill, Flannery O'Connor. Haruki Murakami, Dennis Johnson, uh, uh, Cormac, did I say Cormac? Yeah, Haruki Murakami, so many people. Yeah. Tony, um, Morrison, Tony Morrison. Yeah, Tony Morrison. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I that really helped me to infuse literary writing in, in, into my work. And whatever genre you're writing in, if you're writing horror, you can learn from romance. You can learn from horror, you have atmosphere and suspense and tension. From mystery, you have the suspense, you have the idea of how do you dole out clues, how do you... 
How do you fake people out? How do you have the sleight of hand? You know, thrillers, how do you make it fast paced? Romance, how do you show love and affection? You know, science fiction, how do you work technology in your stories? Fantasy, how do you build worlds? All that stuff crosses over into just about every genre you're writing. So it is all really crucial. And if I can go just back one more step to Freytag, to the short story mechanics, I think for people who are just starting out, it's called Freytag's Triangle, Freytag's Pyramid. You can look it up and Google it. One of the problems I see people who are new to writing or even a little more advanced, when they can't figure out what's wrong with their story, they're usually missing one of those elements. And quite often what I see is you have an internal and an external conflict, and one of them isn't developed. Usually it's the internal, because the external is usually out there. Hey, there's a meteorite crashing down to Earth. We're all going to die. Right there, I can see what the conflict is. But internally, what does your character want? What's their emotion? What's their motivation? What do they need? Everybody in that situation is going to feel different. And people often, if you neglect the internal, we don't know who your character is, what they want. So how can you reverse it? The other thing that doesn't happen in a story uh, for ones that don't work is there's no change. And the hard part is that's connected to your conflicts. If you don't know what your external conflict is, if you don't know what your internal conflict is, the emotions and motivation, how can you reverse it? How can you change it? Once you figure it out, okay, meteorite, and I have felt abandoned by my father and unloved my whole life, and now I'm working with him as a scientist to stop the meteorite, I need my father's love. I need to be seen by him because it's haunted me my whole life. So we need to work towards that, towards the end, and flip it. So at the end, they stop the asteroid. Good. That's the external. Internal, what happens with the father? Maybe you sort it out. Maybe you don't. Maybe in the last moment, you know, he sacrifices himself to save the, the child, the protagonist, and you see in that action his love for you, even though he could never really say it out loud, whatever it is. But if you have a change, something's resolved, and then you speak to it in the denouement, the denouement, the denouement, that's the epiphany at the end where the character understands what has happened and relays that to you, the reader. So at the end of a movie or a book or a short story or a TV series, that's the moment where you're usually crying or moved by it, is that understanding the epiphany of what's happened. It's that, it's that moment at the end of the movie, The Mist. It's the moment at the end of The Witch. It's the moment at the end of Hereditary. It's these moments where we understand what has happened and the impact and how that's going to ripple out, not just from there, that character, but into the world, right? Yeah. Sorry, now I'm, I'm getting off a, a tangent. No, here. I love it. I, I, know, I love it. You know, I love it. I love it when you talk writing. I love it. So uh, now but, we have to talk about the most scary yes. 25 minutes of U.S. television. Ace is obsessed with this one. <laughs> she mm. wants to buy the damn doll for me, mm -hmm. but it's not coming in my house. I, can, I Well, I should qualify this by saying that, A, I watched it with my husband twice. Wow. Much yeah. to my chagrin. He didn't mind it, did no, he? No, because we didn't love really, really bad movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast because there's lots of them to be there. And I pretty much laughed the whole time. So, and die, 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 die. has think, become a new thing in our home. I believe even the birds are repeating it. Yeah. Oh so, God. yeah. So the other night, Casey and I, we double dated with our hobbies to see, you have to say his name. I, I'm Sebastian Maniscalco. Yeah. And so we were talking about the movie with him because Mike didn't watch it. He doesn't believe at all of any kind. Yeah. And I mean, he didn't like hate it. He no, hate no, it. we enjoyed it. We're definitely going to add it to our family repertoire for when we take our up north vacation every summer. And now nice. when I see him again, I have to be like, all right. So, story number three is Amelia. Amelia opens with a young woman walking into a pretty funky high rise apartment. She enters an apartment, sits down on the couch with a small chest, and she opens it, and she pulls out a doll that she refers to as ugly. 
It has um, pretty scary sharp teeth and um, it's like, it's carrying a spear, it's a, a large headed, skinny bodied, um, about a 12 inches high. I think she said it was made out of wood, right? Yeah, yeah. it looks like it's made it, out of it wood. It does look like it is. Yeah. So there's a scroll with it that opens and she, you can read it and you what we can read as the audience is, he who kills. And our character says, Arthur is going to love it. So Amelia picks up the phone and dials one 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 and supposedly is dialing some other boys and girls. Back in the day, we had these things called dials on mm-hmm. these things called telephones. I know, right? Homes. I think That's we all had that same phone. We all had yeah, that exact right? phone. <laughs> okay, so she breaks plans with her mother so that she can celebrate on um, apparently her boyfriend Arthur's birthday. We find out through this conversation with her mother. And I guess I would like to say great monologues on the phone. Right. You know, she does a great job, like the appropriate pausing and response response to what is supposedly the person on the other end. Arthur is an anthropology professor that she's dating. And she tells her mom about this genuine Zuni fetish doll that she bought for him. She explains that there's supposed to be a Zuni hunter spirit inside of it. And it wears a gold chain wrapped around it to keep the spirit from coming to life. So she argues with her mother because she has canceled their plans that they do every Friday. And I am not going to get into what my friend Sigmund has to say about her spending Friday evenings with her mother when she is an adult. And the call abruptly ends. So now Amelia announces that she's going to take a bath and she sets the doll down and as she walks away the gold chain falls off the doll dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. and and the gold chain is like those <laughs> like those id bracelets that you need yeah. to it's so bad it's like the we have an ID bracelet. Will that be okay? And I okay yeah she says an ID bracelet will be fine I'll to use it okay at least it's not a medical alert bracelet, I guess. <laughs> right? That's what I was she could have called for help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, right? All right. So she runs a bath, and then she calls Arthur. Now, she's running a bath. She's in the bedroom. She calls Arthur now to break her plans with him because she decides she's going to spend the evening with her mother after Arthur, Arthur, Amelia. Oh, I don't know. So somewhere in all of this, she goes into the kitchen to bake a steak. Which is just the, I'm sure she's broiling it, but it's such a 70s thing to take a steak out of the refrigerator with plastic wrap over it, put it on a broiler pan, a little salt and pepper and just shove it in. Put a little potato on there too, man. She cut the fat off before she cooked it. No flavor left. No flavor left. And she also... This drove me so crazy. I know this is going to sound so stupid, but she didn't wash her hands. Yeah. Right. She touched the steak. Yep. <laughs> wash your hands, woman. Yeah. You're touching everything in this kitchen. And, and it's like, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. A lot of my friends are not very big meat eaters, but even the meat eater friends of mine, I don't know them just getting a steak and just cooking a steak. I think, I think my mother broiled steak in, in the oven. I, I feel know. like wow. she did. But like, she's supposed to be going out. I know. Right. Night. Why right. is she making dinner? Well, she's not dressed either. She's wearing a robe. All right. Is not that, that's, what, that's what hangs us up in this movie, right? <laughs> that's what hangs yeah, us that's up. It. 
All right, so Amelia <laughs> now realizes that the doll is no longer on the coffee table. She finds the chain, then she looks under the couch and she's reaching under it and she cuts herself on the tip of the spear. So now she pulls the spear out from under the couch, but not the doll. So, all right, then she hears running. <laughs> And she realizes that the knife that she used to cut the fat off of the meat is missing from the counter. How a 12-inch doll got onto that, we're not even okay. going to ask. See, now you put that in my head. Damn I it. know. I'm done. I don't right. talk to you anymore. So she's startled by a shadow moving. She's painstakingly checks out. <laughs> a light goes out and she screams. Am I going to have to read this? And, no. And the doll, no, I've been waiting for two weeks. <laughs> And the doll attacks her ankles. And the doll yells what sounds like die, 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 over and over again with some other unintelligible screaming noises. Oh, okay. Now, it's very serious. There is a 12-inch doll attacking her ankles. She escapes into her bedroom and locks the door. And as she's calling the operator for help, the doll breaks into her bedroom. All right, now the doll is about to jump on her bed. <laughs> and she runs to the bathroom and now closes that door. We see the knife, the steak knife, stabbing under the door. The doll quiets down, and suddenly now we see the door unlock, and the doll is hanging from the doorknob. It's got a good vertical, like twice its height in vertical. So the doll comes in and starts attacking her. So wisely, Amelia. <laughs> grabs a towel and captures the doll in the towel and now holds it underwater for a total of about three she's seconds. She's holding it though. She's like pumping it down. It's, it's super true. weird. Like, it's true. Is, it, is she pretending to fight against this doll? I don't know. I don't know. Really. So now she leaves the room and she's she's stumbling throughout this apartment in her robe, falling down in the, in the, in the best falling down scenes I've ever witnessed in a movie. Oh my God, she falls down all the time. Yes, we were laughing out loud. We'll at the falling, the pratfalls. She kind of did some of those John Ritter pratfalls from Three <laughs> Remember, He used to always be like, Ooh! "That's kind of what she did." Only we weren't laughing; she was screaming while she was doing it. Okay. Well, I, I mean, it, it did stab her in the ankles repeatedly. So I mean, that's yes, true. That's, that's true. true. That would true. that would hurt. Yeah, hurt. that would hurt <laughs> more than the biting. I don't. Know. I don't know. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So <laughs> she leaves the room, and we see the doll sit up in the bathtub, and now the knife is in the doll's mouth. Okay, so she locks herself now in the bedroom and we see the knife coming under the door again. Amelia fights to keep the door closed and grabs a suitcase. So now as the doll gets into the room, Amelia captures the doll in the suitcase. All right, so doll's in the suitcase. Amelia is trying to escape her apartment. She is trying to open a window and it won't open. She turns around and she sees the knife cutting through the top of the suitcase. where I was like, ooh, like wincing right. was when she was trying to grab that yeah. blade. 
because yeah. it's like she's trying to grab this sharp blade and she, she doesn't, doesn't know where it's coming, coming up and down and it's like you know it's razor sharp so she does get her fingers cut a little bit my thought was flip the suitcase upside down shake it i don't know like do something but she tried yeah. to grab the knife which was unsuccessful <clears throat> oh see i said she should have ran and got a hammer but yours was better <laughs> well yeah, she does she does stab him right doesn't she stabs him through the hole right I think, she does yeah, she so does she, so she tries to get uh, open the window she can't get she can't open. get it open the doll escapes she grabs um no the doll is like now it's body it is head out, out. yeah pops its head out of the hole and it is cut she grabs the knife now and she starts stabbing the doll repeatedly and then the, the, the doll quiets down and so she you know slowly opens the suitcase instead <sighs> of leaving and now the doll grabs her arm with its teeth so she's swinging the doll by her arm around the room. She doesn't get to like slam it into the wall. Well, she's it into a lamp. Yeah, it's so delicate lamp. All right. So she's struggling to get this doll to like go over her. She stumbles now into the kitchen again. And the doll has uh, let go of the knife. And now in the kitchen, the doll grabs her by the neck. And now as she's struggling with this doll grabbing her neck, she throws the doll into the oven with the steak. And then she leans up against it, puts her feet up on the counter and holds the doll in the oven with the oven door closed. And now the doll starts to burn. Yeah. And we know this because an enormous amount of smoke (laughs) starts billowing out of the oven. Okay. So cut to the floor. the phone is on the floor and it's doing this beeping sound that you used to get. Oh, yeah. You left the phone beep, off beep, the hook. Beep, yeah, when it was off the hook. Yep. So Amelia picks up the phone, resets it by hanging up, and then dials her mother to apologize and asks to spend the evening together with her mother. So she invites her mother over. In the next scene, we see Amelia, who has. Yeah. She um, is carrying a very long knife. She walks to the door of the apartment and unlocks the door, and then she backs up and is in this crouching pose, stabbing this. Now the knife she has is huge. It's like it looks more like a yeah, almost. uh, But she had one of those in the kitchen earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw it on the. So she is stabbing it into the ground as she's squatting on the ground. And then she gives the and and it's this part I will say she did a good job of being creepy. Yeah. But I still can't get die 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 out of my head. She is stabbing the ground and kind of twirling the knife, and then she smiles, and you see that she has those sharp teeth that the Zuni doll had. So you're assuming that she has now become the spirit Zuni. of the Zuni. Yeah. You know what's super interesting? Before we actually talk about this, I was with some friends last night, and one of them said. My daughter asked, why do we say hang up the phone? Because we don't hang up our phones. I did not realize that it came from, you know, a literal hang up of a phone. Mm -hmm. Because I guess most kids don't have phone lines. I mean, we did. You know, we had, but we had the cordless phones too, you know. My kids haven't answered our our home line in 10 years. So I just thought that was really interesting that you you don't think about things like that. And then all of a sudden they're like, why do you call it hanging up the phone? Yeah. 
watch Terror of Trilo- Trilogy of Terror, and then you'll know why we hang up the phone. And you'll right. know about dialing 111171. Yeah. She knew all the numbers. So, Richard, what's your take on this one? Do tell. I will say that this was probably the only one that scared me in the least was that some of the more, you know, classic horror jump scare stuff in there I thought was 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 kind of was done well. I mean, it, it's all, you're laughing a lot with the die, 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 die. But um, <laughs> I think that final shot was done really well. When she's yeah. crouching there with the, the cleaver, just kind of tap pounding on the, on the carpet and squatting. And then she smiles and she has this big mouthful of pointed teeth. I'm like, oh, all right, nice, nice. And she's going to get her mom who's coming over. Maybe so I thought that was really good. There's obviously, uh, every story, each one of these has some sort of like weird <laughs> psychological, social issue going on. And I'm yeah. like, her really weird relationship with her mom. And she's so, uh, I mean, she seems pretty codependent. And I don't know, like, uh, it's such a weird, it's such a bad relationship with her mother. Then to cancel on this guy on his birthday, too. Like, she just really, I think all of her choices are pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, so that was interesting to see that dynamic, you know, back then. I like the doll's great. The doll was so cool. Very well done. Uh, they did a good job, I think, of shooting that to make it work. I mean, I don't think they had animatronics back then, did they? So it had to be kind of posed no, or something. I, I was thinking when she was, I was saying, saying to Casey, when she was like, had that doll in the towel, it looked like she was making it. Like, I mm. think it was all her making it look like it was kind mm. of attacking her. And mm-hmm. and every time they showed the doll in movement, it almost was like somebody was under it moving it. And right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. so, the, but, but I didn't think the special effects were, were actually terrible. No, no. I think they were clever the way actually they pretty good. It with what they, <clears throat> with what technology they had. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty clever. Yeah. And I, I've always had this kind of weird fear of like when she first sets the doll down, and then when, like, the, when the chain falls off, I'm like, uh-oh. And she goes to the phone, and she's like got her back turned to it. I'm like, oh, it's going to move while she's looking away from it. That's always something that bugs me in horror movies. I think it goes back to The Shining. I always had a thing with the hedges, the hedge animals, and them moving when you looked away and then being closer. Like That's just something that kind of pushes my buttons as far as horror. So I think there's some good little moments in there. At least there wasn't too much dysfunction no no incest or yeah, <laughs> rape right? in this one yeah but uh i thought it was done really well and uh i mean the whole the whole show is <laughs> all three episodes are pretty dated but i mean she does a great job with this she's really a great actress and like you mentioned the monologues on the phone and stuff and i think the what's interesting about watching these movies that are you know from the 70s is that quite often I f- i'm sure we're getting ejected out of the movie because we're going what is that? That's stupid. Like you're looking at the way they're cooking the steak or you're like, you're dialing all ones or you're like <laughs> all these weird little things. That you're like, well, that's dumb. But that's, I think, part of the fun of watching it. So I think, uh, you know, as far as a scary movie, I don't know how much it really scared me, but really fun to watch it. And I think this one is this, it's such a classic meme of this, you know, damn doll and the and the and the die, die, die and the, all that. I mean, it's such a classic moment. But what do you guys think? I actually kind of felt like the voice and the doll kind of was, it, it kind of gave me a Muppet type feeling. Yeah. Less, <laughs> more, it gave me more Muppet, less Chucky doll. Mm. I think I, the dialogue on the phone, the monologue, I, I didn't love that. I thought it was too long and a little boring. Mm-hmm. This That one was not my favorite one of the three. Mm. I didn't think it was that scary. And I can't believe that even in 1975, it was so scary. See, that... this, is, this is what I think about that that scary stuff. So my oldest son is 22, almost, in, in two weeks. weeks yeah. And when he was about 10 or 11, I said, all right, Jonas, 
I'm, we're going to watch Jaws. And this mm-hmm. is going to change your life. Yeah. You are never going to want to go swimming again. You are going to be so afraid, blah, blah, blah. And the whole time he was like, mom, you can tell it's mechanical. Mom, these special effects are terrible. Mom. So I think to be fair to this movie, you know, 25 scariest minutes in television, I think in 1975, this was very, very frightening. To yeah. See. Yeah. But, and, and not just the doll, but at the end, the twist, this, this is again, I think where, where Richard Matheson does a good job is. It's not just a doll attacks her. It doesn't kill her. She wins. I'm doing air quotes here. But by killing it, the spirit leaves the doll and enters her. And she becomes a Zuni warrior. That's a nice a nice little step. He goes beyond. Yeah. I think a lesser writer would have had her just defeat it or lose, right? And, yeah, it, then, yeah. the, and then the doll gets passed on to somebody else who brings it home. Like, oh, what a cute doll. And then like, oh, it's going to happen again. So I like that additional step. And I do think the imagery of her at the end with that big mouth of teeth was kind of creepy. Yeah, I think there were some things that were done pretty well. Yeah, I think I like the twist in all three of them. I thought they were very, mm-hmm. they were smart. Mm-hmm. I thought they were smart and they were well done. And I like that about them because I think they were probably innovative for the time. I mm-hmm. uh, Maybe today we would we would not find the, the sister one, whatever. But I still yeah. think the first one, the twist is pretty clever to turn it on. Oh, yeah. On its head like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. But I, I mean, I think this is probably of, so this is our probably 27th or 28th movie we've watched, TV movie. And this is in my top five, really, because we sure. had some real, really bad movies. Yeah. yeah. And I liked that it was short stories as well. Yeah, I, I like that. I really, I really liked that idea. And to be fair, the first time I saw the Amelia one yeah. was with Tim, which means mm. It's like a Mystery Science Theater 3000. Right. <laughs> totally. He totally. cannot not comment on it. Yeah, I know. And yeah. so, so I've that just really... got his comments constantly. Yeah. So yeah. it puts me in that whole different mindset kind of, when I'm watching it. Kind of yeah, it really, it really diffuses any of the tension you might have. So yeah. I'm curious then. So if this is a pretty, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's probably a pretty low mark as far as scaring the three of us. What's the scariest movie for you? Like what's your scariest movie you've ever seen that you freaks you out every time? For me, I think it might be hereditary because it it really scared the crap out of me it's a more recent film but oh my god i saw it in theaters and my skin was crawling i was flushed my hair was raising up i was like having a fight or flight response like it really pushed my buttons and then when i watched it at home with my son i'm like oh on the home tv it's not going to do the same thing holy crap there's certain moments in there that really still got me so that's one of my favorite movies if not in the last 10 years maybe ever so what's the movie that really scares you both the most that's such a good question you go first i gotta think. damn it i knew you were gonna say i that. know because i'm i'm thinking about i don't watch horror because mm-hmm. i don't do well with horror mm-hmm. but i i i mean i read stephen king mm-hmm. voraciously mm-hmm. when i was younger honestly every time i jump in the water i'm still afraid of jaws i'm not kidding yeah. like even at my friends even yeah. at wendy's parents lake even at yeah. a little lake i'm like there could be something in here yeah oh that, um, that'll scar you for life for sure i mean I, it's funny you mentioned jaws i think that was my first r-rated movie in a theater was it r i remember going to a theater with my younger yeah, brother it was, it was and i don't know how we got in because i couldn't have been do you know what year it came out jaws 76? again i'm oh, sorry i'm gonna send you to your phone again <laughs> I, uh, okay, I got she's it. used to it she, yeah. she has to have a hand with 
And I'm like, hey, remember that TV show that was on for like four episodes in 1987? What was that called? And then she'd be like, yeah, whatever. 75. Yeah, 75. So how in the hell did I go to see Jaws in a theater at the age of like 10? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good question because I and don't think- I remember going in and they, they it yeah. sold out. It was a big deal. Yeah, and I, I remember I remember sitting on a couch that they pulled in from the lobby in the middle row because they were out of seats. And I yeah. I swear well, it, was it was my was brother and I. PG. It was rated <gasps> PG. And oh, there you go. When, yeah, that was when there wasn't a PG thirteen. Because oh. well, think about it. Is there There's really no nudity? Sex? Yeah. Is there really any f bombs? No, I guess not. There you go. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Okay. So yeah, that movie scared the crap out of me. So I hear you. That's a good choice. I Beth? think for me, I think it's and a film that I still don't like to watch today is, is Poltergeist. Mm. It, it was it's so scary because mm. you, it's like this family moving into this new home and then this that's a good one thing happens around them and it's still terrifying. Yeah, I just found that one really scary. But I think if I have to pick like a favorite horror movie, I would say Halloween the original Ooh, with Jamie Lee well. Curtis. I just think yeah. it's a great film because it's a good story. Well, Sam, yeah. for me, like if you ask me favorite, Pit in the Pendulum, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I know you like Ooh, that. Suspense, the suspense in that. And the first time I mm. saw that, I was in sixth grade and they showed it at school. And then this is actually my sister Lisa usually listens to. So if Lisa, if you're listening to this, when we were kids, they used to show movies at the high school on Sundays, like right after church. And so we would walk up to the high school and one, I remember seeing Mask of the Red Death. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I, so I was six, seven, maybe at that time, right? Scary. And I was watching it a few years ago because when I got hit in the pendulum, Mask of the Red Death is on the other side. There's like, there's gang rape in (laughs) in Mask of the Red Death. I don't remember that. There's gang rape. Oh my God. And I was watching it and I called my sister and I was like, I don't know how many sessions of therapy mom and dad owe us for this. <laughs> or maybe the park and rec department of the city of Port Washington. <laughs> right, right. Oh my God. There is gang, like, it, yeah. what was passable then. Right. Um, but Mask of the Red Death, too. Was, yeah. But Pit in the Pendulum will always be with when that pendulum mm, is right down and oh, hits God. his shirt. And then, oh, it's so like, good. That's so oh, good. the suspense oh, is like amazing. You know, the, I think another movie that really scared me, but in a more psychological don't go to the bars way was you and I watched Looking for, for Mr. Good Bar. Oh, God. Right? Oh, God. Yes. That scared oh, my the God. crap out of me. I think That's I stopped fi- going to bars for like a uh, couple of months after that. Yeah, my sister, my sister, we had, a, we, had a, we had a friend who my sister mm. said, she needs to watch Looking for Mr. Goodbar because she needs to and make we better decisions. <laughs> wow. And then we watched it and we were like, you're oh. right, she does need to watch this, but yeah. I don't know if she ever did. Why they wow. have to remake that is beyond me. Yeah, because that yeah. is, oh, oh my gosh. So yeah. Scary. So so what the hell were these people thinking showing <laughs> showing these movies? I know, today? right? It's crazy. I mean, I think there just wasn't a lot of decision making behind you know, I think days. our parents, our parents, there's was truly that whole penis, wop, 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 wop with parents. Yeah, I mean, I feel yeah. like I spent a lot more time with my kids than my parents ever did. We were like, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's mm-hmm. true. It's generational. Totally. Yeah. We yeah. were a little bit more on our own, a yeah. little bit more like do whatever. Nobody 
really gave that much thought to what we watched on TV or yeah. what we did or any of that stuff. Right. But I yeah, think- you, like you shouldn't be up at two in the morning watching. If you're not, if you're up at two in the morning watching Death Race 2000 or Death Race, whatever it was, you know, when there's a nude scene in it, like just for a flash for a moment, like that kid should be in bed. Uh, the parents right. should be aware, right? Exactly. I mean, in my neighborhood growing up, you're totally right, Beth, that we had a giant bell on a post in the backyard. And when it was time for dinner, my mom would ring the bell and yep. she had no idea where we were. Someone's house somewhere in the neighborhood and yeah. everybody come running. Everybody yeah. had a different bell or yeah. one mom would just scream, Vincent! And he'd come yeah. running from wherever you were. No idea where we were. Yeah, we had parents that would whistle. We just knew, <laughs> like we knew instinctively when, when yeah. we had to go to, home. To be fair, I had a bell for my children that I would ring. <laughs> <laughs> my kids were just in the backyard. We live, well, we, we live right by a park. Yeah. So that, that was... I just think that it's, no, it's kind of like the dial phones. Like it's such a such a weird right. time period. Like I can pick. I mean, that bell was as big as my head. And that, <laughs> when I would hear that clang, I could be God, like ten houses over, and I'd hear it yeah. be like, "Oh, dinner, gotta go." Yeah. Right. Get on your bike, right back, or yeah, your t- or whatever t- you t- came on. Yeah. <laughs> your homemade scooter, because my had those back. My then. my parents had a bell as well, but the florals had the biggest bell. Mm. So. We all heard the floral bell, and then we knew it was time. For, oh, time to go! Yeah. yeah. Well, once once one kid left, it wasn't as much fun anymore, anyway. So it's like, yeah, we might as well go home. Yeah. And then if you went out, when we went out after dinner, it was whatever time the the street lights came on, we came home. Yeah. Oh. So whatever time that was, it changed depending on mm. how light yeah. it was. Yeah. But that was when we came home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's oh. why they could get away with this stuff when these <laughs> these TV yeah, shows. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Oh my gosh, Richard, we want to thank you so much for coming on this episode. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. My pleasure. Tell us where everybody can find you. And again, I'll put everything in the show notes sure. so that yeah. um, they can just link to whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Are. Thank you. This was so much fun. It was so much fun to watch this movie. And I really yeah. have enjoyed talking to you guys about it. So many memories from our childhood and childhoods and all the weird you know from the dial phones to like, it's really that's fun we really like this that's why we like this podcast because while the movies haven't always been that good there's so much to talk about as far as just pop culture of those the time period yep. and we've had so much fun just talking about like what's a dial tone like what do you mean you couldn't leave the kitchen if you were on the phone and and what, right. what's that noise that the doorbell that sound that yeah. makes that thing on your door i mean it's just yeah. been a lot of fun so but having yeah. you come and talk about a book is Casey and I love reading. Oh, we, love, awesome. we just love to go to book talks. And so we're so yeah. thrilled to have you join oh, us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking about it. It's been fun to watch the movie and, and chat with you guys. As far as me, you can find me. My website is what does not kill me.com. You know, what does not kill you makes you stronger, right? It's a Nietzsche quote. Where I teach is storyvilleonline.com. And then I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram everywhere. Just look for Richard Thomas. I'm, you can find me pretty easily. And then I have, I have a profile on Amazon too. So obviously my short story collection, Spontaneous Human Combustion, is a, the book I have coming out next. That'll be out on 2222. I, I did turn in my latest novel to my agent over Thanksgiving. It's this Arctic Horror Sin Eater book that's really I'm really excited about it. I, th- I think this collection is probably my best collection ever. And I think this might be the best book I've written. It's a really interesting blend of kind of the thing meets the terror with a, a, a really heavy dose of the giver. So it's a bit of hope woven into the the winter and the, the sin eater stuff. So I, the whole sin eater thing was really fascinating to me. So I, I thought that was quite exciting. So that's awesome. Me. awesome. All right. Well, do you have a favorite TV movie from the 70s, 80s or 90s you'd like us to review? Let us know. 
Find us on our socials. We're on Facebook at Made for TV Movie Club Podcast, on Twitter at TV Movie Club Pod One, and on Instagram at Made underscore for underscore TV underscore movie underscore club. I like to make her say that. Or give the hashtag MFTVMC Podcast a goog and you'll find us. You can listen to us on all your favorite podcast channels, including Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We are also on Amazon Music. If you love us as much as we love you, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook and tell your friends about us. Until next time, we will see you right here in the clubhouse.